This is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you the second Aliyah of Parshat, or Sidrat, Pinchas. The second Aliyah, which begins in chapter 26, Parakhafav, verse 5, Pasuke, essentially is the census. It includes a list not only of the, the count of the, the various tribes, but the Bate'av, or the Mishpachot, which are the ancestral houses, essentially the sub-tribes, and according to those sub-tribes, the land of Israel would be divided. That's an issue I'll, I'll bring up more uh, in the next Aliyah. Uh, because this program that the OU is running is a Shtayim Mikra project, I feel I should read all of the Hebrew, and that's, I think, the approach I should take. However, the translations I'll keep to a minimum, because essentially it's a list of family names and of numbers. Occasionally there will be something to interject in the explanation, something out of the ordinary, extraordinary, but this Aliyah pretty much is what you see is what you get, a list of tribes, their subfamilies, and the numbers of each tribe. I'll translate uh, all of the items, the words, the phrases in the first tribe, that is the Reuven tribe, uh, in order for us to get a basic vocabulary of how the census will go, but afterwards I'll try to speed things up. Reuven Bechor Yisrael. Reuven is, of course, the Bechor, biologically the firstborn to Yaakov. Although in the book of Chronicles it actually states, in the book of Divrei Ayamim it states that he is the Bechor, but he lost his Bechor status uh, to Yehuda because of his sin with Bilha. Nonetheless, um, that loss of Bechor there uh, is referring to the spiritual implications of being the Bechor, the duty and the responsibility that one has when one is the Bechor. But uh, biologically speaking, a Bechor is a Bechor, a firstborn is a firstborn, and Reuven is still the Bechor. B'nei Reuven chanoch, mishpachat ha-chanochi, l'falu mishpachat palui Each one of the tribal leaders' children, in this case, Chanoch and Falu became a Beitav, a Mishpacha, or a sub-tribe, according to which all the people of the tribe associated themselves to, and the land was given based on those sub-tribes. L'Chetzron, Mishpacha L'Chetzroni, L'Charmi, Mishpacha L'Charmi, the two other sub-tribes, Eila, Mishpachot Ruveni, Vayiyu, Fekudehem, Shloshava, Arbaim, Elef, Ushvamiot, Ushloshim. That's 43,730 which is down only 6% from the first generation's count, which is not a major degradation of population, and a little bit here, a little bit there. And now, since the Torah wants to track down the events of Datan and Aviram, probably to let everyone know that because of their sin, any offspring that they might have would not inherit any land of Israel, the Torah will discuss the lineage of Datan and Aviram. I'll return to this point in a future Aliyah when we deal with the daughters of Tzlovchad, as well, the fact that those who were involved in Korach and Tatan and Abiram's rebellion had no rights at all to Eretz Israel, apparently even their children. So the Torah follows the lineage from Palu to Eliav to Nimuel and Tatan Vaviram. Uh, and since uh, Datan Vaviram were excluded from inheriting, Nimuel would be essentially the one to inherit all of that ancestral pro- uh, uh, property. Uvnei Falu Eliav, Uvnei Eliav Nimuel, Vidatan Vaviram, Hu Datan Vaviram, Kuri Eiaida, Asher Hitsu, Al Moshe, Bialaron, Badakorach, Bahat Sotam, Al Adonai. These are the same Datan Vaviram chosen out of the community, which is that they were given a position of political significance, who instigated against Moses and Aaron among Korach's assemblage in their instigation against God. The verse implies, 
Although I think it seems pretty clear from that story backed by Korach that Datan and Aviram are not instigating for the same purposes as Korach's instigation, as his rebellion. Their rebellion is quite different. But they use, they attach themselves to Korach's rebellion as a means of springboarding their own, as opening up the door to their own rebellion. And they are nothing if not opportunists. Korach's rebellion, it was really a religious rebellion. Sure, it was one of leadership. But at the very least, one could say that Korach wanted to serve God. He just wanted Wanted to do it on his own terms. Um, that was not Datan and Abiram's rebellion. In fact, Datan and Abiram not only tagged along with Koach, they, they tagged along with Owen Ben Felet. Owen Ben Felet was a tribal leader of Reuven, and now we discover that Datan and Abiram are also from the tribe of Reuven. Now, Reuven's descendants, Owen ben, through Owen Ben Felet, were saying, listen, we were the original Bechor, so we should be the ones serving the temple. Now, the rebellion the rebellion, so to speak, of Om Ben Felet went nowhere because everybody agreed that Reuven sort of lost their rights. And that's why Om Ben Felet really disappears from the equation. But once again, Datan Ram, being also from the time of Reuven, used that as a springboard to for their own personal rebellion. That rebellion is not against how religion is to be done in Israel, who is going to the Bukhor and who is going to serve in the temple. They stated outright, let's go back to Egypt, because Egypt is the true land of milk and honey, a really chutzpahdik thing to say, a statement which says, if they could say that Egypt is the true land of milk and honey, they are not only saying they want to go back to Israel, they want anarchy, they want to turn everything upside down, but they're also mocking the very words that came out of Moshe's mouth regarding the land of Israel. And the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them along with Korach as that assemblage was eaten in the fire along with the 120 men and they became an example. The word nace here, not from the word miracle, but the word nace is a flag, uh, an example that people rally around or learn from. Uh, essentially, there are two punishments because there were two really separate re- rebellions. There were ones who wanted to serve God, but they wanted to wrest religious control f- away from Moshe and Aaron. Those were the ones who were burnt in the fire. The ones who wanted to throw off all of religion and go back to Egypt or just to descend into anarchy, they're the ones who got swallowed up by the earth. Um, the Torah, it's interesting, the Torah in one place said Korach got swallowed by the earth, and in another place he said it got burned by fire. So Ibn Ezra famously comments that essentially he caught on fire, and then apparently running away and screaming on fire or whatever it is, this is my uh, extrapolation of the Ibn Ezra, the Ibn Ezra didn't say anything about screaming, but I have this uh, image essentially, the Ibn Ezra says that he, while he was on fire he ran and he fell into this hole in the earth and died sort of in both ways. Overall, anyway, you look at it, it was a very bad day for Korach. Whenever I read that Ibn Ezra, I kind of think of um, the Lord of the Rings, the Return of the King, where Denethor, the mad steward of Gondor, catches on fire and then runs screaming off the top of the city and shrieks to his death below. But I, I probably shouldn't make light of the death of, of Korach. Uvnei Korach lo but the children of Korach did not die. Of course, we see them later on in Tanakh as singers in the temple, as authors of Tehillim. Um, everything their father should have been for, for some uh, for some people, for apparently for Korach and his ilk, uh, it's never enough to be second. It's never enough to be third. They always want more and more and more. And this is the amazing thing about Shimon, which I mentioned in the first Aliyah. 
Shnayim ve'esrim elef umatayim, 22,200. Only 22,200 remain. That's down from 39 years ago in the first generation, 59,300. That's a loss of 63% of the tribe. That is a complete decimation of the tribe of Shimon. Because of that decimation, they would not take their own property in Israel. They would, they would get absorbed into Yehuda's territory. And it tells us everything we need to know about the rebellion of Balpor and how it was a widespread tribal rebellion and not simply an individual rebellion. Next tribe. B'nei Gad l'mishpotam l'itzfon mishpachat sifoni l'chagi mishpachat chagi l'shuni mishpachat shuni l'ozni mishpachat ozni l'ari l'eiri mishpachat eiri l'arod mishpachat arodi l'ariel l'arle mishpachat har ar eli eli mishpachat b'nei Gad l'fgudehem arba'im elav achamesh meot. That's forty thousand five hundred down eleven percent from the forty five thousand six hundred fifty in generation one. God is mentioned here, by the way, because we're going through the tribes grouped together as they were around the Mishkan. And God, uh, who is um, from the handmaiden tribe, from Bila and Zilpah, they were stationed in Reuben's camp in the desert because on the other side was, was Dan, Naphtali, and Asher, the other handmaiden tribes. They were positioned to the north in the Mishkan. So essentially that leaves one of the one of the handmaiden tribes out and God, and therefore God was sort of attached on to or adopted by Reuben and Shimon, who were stationed to the south of the Mishkan. B'nei Yehuda, Er v'onan, v'yamot, Er v'onan, Beretz Khan. It's important to know that Er and Onan died, uh, because essentially that statement, again, is very powerful. That The fact that they died in Eretz Canaan, so God is essentially saying, because of their sins, their children would have no offspring, and their offspring would not know the transformation of the land of Canaan to the holy land promised to the children of Israel. Which is seventy six thousand five hundred, the largest tribe, up one thousand nine hundred from generation number one. Bnei Yisachar, Mishpachotam, Tola, Mishpachat Tolai, Lefuva, Mishpachat Puni, Liashuv, Mishpachat Yashuvi, Lishimron, Mishpachat Shimroni, Elam Mishpachot Yisachar, Lefkudehem, Arba Avishim Elef, Ushlosh Neot. 64,300, up 18% from generation number one. As I'll point out, it seems to be good to be living in Yehuda's territory. Uh, it seems to, uh, it seems to give enough room for population growth. B'nai Zivulun, also, uh, uh, connected with Yehuda campment to the east of the Mishkan. L'mishpachotam, l'severed, mishpachat asardi, l'eilon, mishpachat a'iloni, l'achliel, mishpachat a'yach l'eili, eilon, mishpachot a'zivuloni, l'fkudahem, shishim, elev, achamesh meot, zvulun, number 60,500, up 5% for generation one. Again, apparently being in the vanguard with Yehuda allowed for a healthy expansion of population. And now to the next encampment, the Yosef uh, encampment, or I should say the Rachel encampment. B'nei Yosef v'mishpachotam Menasheh v'Ephraim. Now Yosef was divided into two tribes. Essentially, what that means is Yosef got the B'chor, that is from Yaakov's perspective, and he even says so, that Menasheh and Ephraim would be like his Reuben and Shimon. They would get a double portion of the land. So instead of Yosef getting one portion, Menasheh would get one and um, and Ephraim would get another. What's interesting is that it doesn't really go according to Yaakov's plan. That is, Yaakov had planned that Menashe, remember he switches his hands, 
And Menashe was the Bechor, but he switches his Bechor hand, his right hand, to Ephraim, expecting Ephraim to become the powerful tribe, not Menashe. But as we'll see, that's not how it's turning out here. It's Menashe that becomes by far the more powerful tribe. Now, of course, Yaakov, no doubt, was having a vision, a prophecy of um, of other things, not just population count and, and military might. He probably uh, envisioned that Ephraim would be giving birth to most of the northern kings or many of the northern kings that would lead northern Israel when they split away from Shlomo. Um, nonetheless, someone living at that time, in that second generation in the Midbar, ready to go into Israel, would wonder whether Yaakov should not have crossed his hands and left his Bechor hand over Menashe and not Ephraim. B'nei Menashe l'machir mishpach l'amachiri u'machir holi gilad. The gilad mishpachat ha-giladi. Eile b'nei gilad i'ezer mishpachat ha-i-ezri l'chelik mishpachat ha-chelki v'asriel mishpachat ha-asrieli v'shecha mishpachat ha-shichmi u'shmida mishpachat ha-shmida'i v'chefer mishpachat ha-chefri. And now the Torah mentions Slofchad's daughters since they will inherit part of the land in their father's name as we will see in detail uh, in a later aliyah. Utslavchad ben Chefer lo hayulo banim kiim banot v'shem banot slavchad machla v'noach hogla milka v'tirza. He had no boys but girls, and these were their names. Now the Gileads, the Giladim, were major warriors. Their um, their success in war is chronicled in many places, including the Book of Chronicles. And it, no doubt, their military success, no doubt, uh, explains their massive population explosion, which I'm going to get to in a second. Their famous son, their prodigal son, Yair, was a super powerful warrior. Many towns were named after him. But that's for a later place in Tanakh. In the meantime, let's get to the actual numbers. Elam Shpchot Menashev, Kudayam, Shnayim, Chamishim, Elaf, Ushvamiot. 52,000 and 700. That's up from 32,200. In generation one, that's a growth of over 60% in number. Eileb, that, just a massive population explosion. Eileb b'nei Ephraim, l'mishpachotan, l'shutel, l'mishpachat ha-shutalchi, l'vecher, l'mishpachat ha-bachri, l'tacha, l'mishpachat ha-tachani, v'eileb b'nei shutalach, l'eiram, l'mishpachat ha-eirani, eileb m'shpachot b'nei Ephraim, l'fkudayhem, shnayim u'shloshim elev, ha-chamesh me'ot, eileb b'nei Yosef, l'mishpachotam, the combined tribes of Joseph. Now, Ephraim, lists at 32,500, which is down 20% for Generation 1. We can't say necessarily why. Yosef doesn't seem to do anything negative in the, in, the, in the desert that would sort of reduce their numbers by 20%. It could be just with the massive success of Menashe, it necessarily eats at the population of Ephraim. Either way, it's clear that at least at face value, things had not worked out with Menashe and Ephraim uh, as Yaakov had envisioned. B'nei v'nyamin l'mishpotam l'vela m'shpachat ha-bal'i l'ashbel m'shpachat ha-ashbeli l'achira m'shpachat ha-achirami l'shufa m'shpachat ha-shufami l'chufa m'shpachat ha-chufami v'yu v'nei vela ard v'naaman m'shpachat ha-ardi l'naaman m'shpachat ha-naami e'le v'nei v'nyamin l'mishpotam f'kudayhem chamisha v'arvim elef v'sheish me'ot 45,600 which is up quite a bit from the 35,400 in generation one so a decent population explosion although nothing like Menashe. Uh, the Rachel tribes, as I mentioned, were the rear guard positioned to the west of the Mishkan and now to the north, where we have the Bechor, the firstborn of the uh, Bilhan Zilpa, the handmaiden tribes. 
So it's one family, the Shuchami. Shuchami up 3% from generation one. And I believe the second to largest tribe next to, uh, next to Yehuda, which I guess shouldn't surprise us as a Bechor tribe. Uh, of the, uh, as the, you know, the firstborn of, uh, of the handmaiden tribes. Now, the other two handmaiden tribes, not including God, B'nai Asher l'mishpachotam li'yimna mishpach la'yimna, li'yishvi mishpach la'yishvi, li'vriyah mishpach la'abiri'i, li'vnei v'riyah l'chever mishpach la'chevri, l'malkiel mishpach la'malkieli, v'shem bat Asher sarach. E'lem mishpachot b'nai Asher l'fkudehem shlosha, Chamishim Elef Arbamiot, 53,400, a healthy increase from 41,500, some 39 years before. Um, a simple explanation regarding the mention of the daughter of Asher, whose name was Sarach, was that she's being mentioned here because she inherited a portion of the land for whatever reason. Perhaps she was, uh, the lone direct daughter, um, Ramban raises some possibilities, but it seems to be directly connected to the land, much like Benot Slavchan mentioned, because they directly inherited the land. Uh, there's no doubt that she was a woman of renown, otherwise it's unlikely that she would have been mentioned in the Torah. There is, because of a kind of this mysterious and uh, 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 very terse mention, there's much of Gothic literature about her, quite a bit of it's supernatural, but we'll stick to the plain sense of it here. B'nei Naftali l'mishpachotam l'yach tse'el mishpach l'yach tse'eli l'guni mishpach l'guni l'yetzer mishpach l'yitzri l'shilei mishpach l'ashilei mi e'le mishpachot Naftali l'mishpachotam v'kudahem chamisha v'arbaim elef v'arbaim yot from 53,400 in generation one down to 45,400 not a decimation but a loss a percentage loss without question e'le p'kudei b'nei Yisrael she'esh miot elef v'alef sh'vah miot u'shloshim this is the census of Israel, 601,730. Essentially, it's very tight, very similar to the 603,550 of Generation 1, a very small percentage change. Uh, why do the numbers stay the same? Perhaps just chance, perhaps. And, and if there is a Kabbalistic significance to the fact that the numbers essentially remain the same for males 20 age, age 20 and over, and if there is a significance in the number 600,000, which certainly has evokes certain things in Jewish history, well, those Kabbalistic and supernatural things I couldn't say. The bottom line is the census, the overall census of 600,000 does not really change significantly between year one and year two. I'm sorry, between generation one and generation two.